Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. Well, what a gift to gather together. Thank you, Migs, for offering your incredible gift of song and music and worship to our King. Uh, just want to encourage us, and uh, in the next in this next season, we're so excited about where we're headed as a church. Uh, on as as Jen mentioned, as David's mentioned, as as we've been talking about on our website and through communication, we're going to begin in-person gatherings on February seventh, and we're so excited to have people in the space with us. But one of the really exciting things is we're also going to be live streaming at that time. So uh, I know that many of us have been watching the gatherings at different times, and this next season we want to encourage you. Let's join in as one body together, whether you're watching at home, whether you're in person in the space, um, where we would just love for you to join us at 10 a.m. And actually, we're going to be getting live streaming on January 24th, which we're really excited about. The team has just been working so hard, and we're so thankful to the Lord for them. Uh, the last thing I just want to keep on our radar as a church is on January 31st, we're going to have a virtual church family meeting. We do a, a, an update meeting at the beginning of every year, looking back to 2020, seeing how the Lord worked in beautiful ways. We want to invite anybody and everybody who considers Downtown Hope their church home to join us. It's going to be online through a Zoom call. Uh, you can sign up and please sign up. We need you to sign up so you can get the Zoom link on our website. Um, and then it's just going to be a great time together as a whole church family. There'll be some time for Q&A at the end. Uh, it'll be looking back to 2020 and looking forward to 2021. As Colin mentioned, we're continuing our series this morning called Fulfilled through Luke's Gospel. And uh, we want to encourage you to track along with us through your discipleship bands and your community groups. Uh, you can use our resource called The Daily and sign up for that. We just want to be in this process and on this journey of being formed, transformed by God's grace through his word and through the power of his spirit. So let me read to us Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll dive in together. Luke chapter 4, starting verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. But when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in, the moment, in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve only, you sh only him shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified 
by all. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, as we are uh, praying over our nation, as we are asking for your kingdom to come in greater measures to our lives and our city, to see the, the flourishing of our neighbors, to see the gospel impact lives, we're asking that you would begin with us, Lord. We are a completely imperfect people, Lord, in process here. Lord, struggling, many of us, all of us, to some degree with different temptations. And we're asking that the truth of this word would encourage us and convict us this morning, Lord, that your spirit would speak through me, that the things that are from you would be remembered and the things that are not from you, Lord, would be forgotten and that we would be shaped. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come speak through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, every Christmas uh, in our home, we get a delivery. And we get a delivery from our old high school friend. Her name's Jen Bailey. And every year she drops off um, this wonderful kind of chocolate bark. But in, in, in the midst of the chocolate bark is really the gold, the thing that I love the most. And it, are, it is these homemade peanut butter cups. I mean, like watch out Reese's. These peanut butter cups could be sold at any store because they are the sweetest and most tender and most delicious thing ever. I mean, I love peanut butter and I love peanut butter and chocolate and having those things together. And I know they're coming around Christmas and they're delivered in this nice little bag. And when they show up every year, there's always a question, who gets the peanut butter cups? And it's kind of known in my family, dad gets the peanut butter cups. But, you know, I'm trying to be a good father, a good husband, share the peanut butter cups. But every single year, they're sitting there in the pantry, and I'm thinking to myself all day long, those peanut butter cups are right there, and I just want to eat one every minute. There's only like five of them, by the way. Maybe next year, Jen, you could send like 10 or 20 of them. And, and I'm constantly tempted. I mean, I am just tempted. I just... I just want to eat, I would love to eat, I would stuff them all in my mouth because they're that amazing. And every year, I'm just having to exercise self-control in this moment of temptation. Will dad eat all the peanut butter cups? Will Joey, my husband, eat all the peanut butter cups? Or will he save some for the family? And it always ends up at the end that all the peanut butter cups are gone. The, the rest of the chocolate bark's in there. We're not as into that. Sorry, Jen. We really love the peanut butter cups, not the other stuff. But, but, but it is a constant temptation for me every Christmas. And if you're human, like me, you know that we all constantly experience an onslaught of temptation in our lives. Like every day, moment by moment, there's temptation that we face. Some, some time ago, uh, I knew a guy, uh, he was publicly involved in some things that he shouldn't have been, in my opinion. I was frustrated that he had made public appearance in some of these things, um, things that were unhelpful, uh, activities that were harmful to others. And certainly the name of Jesus is one of those things that you have friends and neighbors who don't know Christ or who have been disconnected or hurt by the church. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with that guy because of what he's saying and how he's acting. And I have to be honest, I was frustrated. Like I was mad that he was involved in these things. I was angry. And, and part of it, no doubt, was righteous anger. And, and, but part of it, along with it, came this deep-seated temptation in my life, a real temptation, not peanut butter cup temptation, but actual temptation. I was tempted to cut him off. I mean, I had some real anger in my heart. I, I know none of you can relate to that. 
I, I had this temptation, right? Why don't you just isolate him? Why don't you just expose him? Why don't you just put him out there? To a certain extent, why don't you just cut him off relationally? And, and, and it, it, was, it was a real temptation. I, I'm, not, I'm not excited or proud to share that or confess that, but it was a real thing going on in my heart because this guy and what he was involved in was frustrating me to the core. What was going on inside of me in that moment? What was happening in me? We all face temptations in different ways. In the first couple chapters of Luke, we've learned that the Messiah has arrived. That's what Luke is teaching us. And then in chapter three, the scene jumps some 20 years and we find John the baptizer is preparing the way and Jesus is baptized. And then in, in, in chapter four, we find Luke is constantly showing us how Jesus fulfills his Messiahship, constantly is showing us who he is as the Messiah. And we find in this passage the most interesting way that Jesus is shown as the Messiah. Because if we were writing this story, we might think that the way to prove that Jesus is the Messiah is to show him in power and strength. And if the devil shows up in the scene, he's conquering him and stomping him out. But instead, what we find in this account is almost the opposite. We find Jesus in the wilderness, in isolation himself, in hunger. The Messiah is not found on a throne. Jesus isn't in a castle. He's not in a temple. He's not in a synagogue first. He's found, as he begins his ministry, in the fullness of his humanity, fully divine Jesus is. But here we find a, 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 just a full picture of his humanity coming through the same experience that we undergo every single day of our lives. Temptation. Temptation. And the word here in Greek in verse 2, where it says he was, he was for 40 days being tempted, is a word for temptation or test. It's to, to, and I love, I love some of the way that uh, the definition rolls out here, to try whether a thing can be done. Okay? It's not just a temptation, but it's also a test. It's the same word, to attempt, to try, to make trial of, to test, for the purpose of ascertaining its quantity or what he thinks, or how he will behave himself. So it's a test, it's a temptation. It's the same word used in all the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke. It's what Cain is struggling with in Genesis chapter 4, when his sacrifice was not accepted by the Lord. We find sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's what James chapter 1 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it fully is grown, brings forth or gives birth to death. It's what Dallas Willard says in his book, Renovation of the Heart, choice is where sin dwells. And we might, there's a lot of ways to define temptation, but one of the ways is to say temptation is that invitation to snatch for ourselves what has not been offered to us by God. Temptation is that invitation to grab or snatch or, uh, you know, secure for ourselves that which has not been offered to us by God. And I'm wondering, what is it for you this morning? Where is that temptation lurking? Where are you being tempted are you tempted to, to slander a person, that person in your life? Are you tempted to engage in an inappropriate conversation with that person who's not your spouse? 
Are you tempted to doubt your employer or the authorities in your life, their motives? Are you tempted to cheat on your exams or in school? Are you tempted to lie about something that you did wrong, a sin in your life? Are you tempted to steal that thing, whatever that thing is, music or art or intellectual property? Or maybe you're just tempted to fear this morning. It's a big thing right now in our culture. And in this passage, what we have is this this intimate account of Jesus experiencing temptation. And we learn about the nature of temptation and how we, by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's power, can resist the temptation in our lives. There's, There's three movements in this passage. There's a timing to temptation that we find here. There's an attack of temptation. What is the attack of temptation? And then thirdly, what is the resistance of temptation? So the timing of temptation, the attack of temptation, and the resistance of temptation. So first, the timing of temptation. Now, verse 1 and verse 14, we find that the Holy Spirit is bookending uh, this passage. It's as if to say God, the Holy Spirit, is with us even in our darkest moments of temptation. That off the, off the start here should be an encouragement for us. When we go through something, when we are tempted, okay, it, it's not, as James says, God tempting us, but it is to say that the Lord is with us to strengthen us even in our, in our darkest moments of temptation. When we think there's no way out, the Lord is there to open up a door for us. We don't have to submit to it. Secondly, we find in the timing of temptation um, the reality that it is the devil who tempts us. That's verse, uh, last part, second part of verse two there. Jesus is being tempted, tempted specifically by the devil. Now, St. Augustine's definition of sin for us uh, is along the lines of sin being something that's distortive or corruptive, um, something that is overemphasized or underemphasized, things in our lives that are disordered. It's a great definition of sin. It's a part of definition of sin. Uh, it's a helpful definition of sin. But there is also an aspect that the, spi- that the scripture speaks to, that there is a real, evil, sinister force who is attempting to deceive us and harm us. That's the devil. That's the enemy of our souls. And there is a real There is real demonic presence in our world and in our lives constantly trying to distract and discourage and throw us off. Jesus himself describes the enemy in John 10.10. He says, he comes, the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's a real thing. So do not think for a moment that the things that are happening, the divisions in our world are just simply because, well, we're just corruptive and we're just distorted and we just disorder our loves. Absolutely, that's part of it. Those are effects of it. But there is a real enemy behind it all who is stirring these things up. Let us not be naive, my brothers and sisters. This is Peter in 1 Peter 5.8. He's a, 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 a person, a guy in the Bible who knew firsthand about the enemy's temptations. He writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. And this leads us to understanding what the timing of of temptation is for the enemy of our souls. And the answer to that question we find in this next verse here, verse 3, it's vulnerability. We are most susceptible to temptation we're, most vul- we're, we're vulnerable to temptation in our vulnerability. Verse 3, Jesus ate nothing 
for those days. Now, 40 days without food and 40 days, and and this isn't talked about much, but 40 days without people around him, human beings. It's part of God's grace to us as people in our lives. And Jesus had neither of those. He was deprived of bread and food, and he was deprived of relationship for 40 days. And here he is in this moment. How would you describe him? Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Now, when we read 40 days in this passage, it should trigger us to think about the Old Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. We always want to understand what is the New Testament saying as it relates to the Old Testament. So 40 days, where else do we find the number 40 in the Scripture? And this automatically throws us back to the nation of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. We walk through that um, uh, uh, a couple, I guess it was earlier this summer as we were um, walking through the book of Numbers. Uh, Into the Wild, we call the series. And you can go back and listen to those online, a great series. And we, we track with the nation of Israel wandering through the desert. So just as Israel came through the waters out of Egypt, so Christ comes through the water in baptism before this passage. As Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, so Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness. By the way, it was the same wilderness that Jesus was in as the nation of Israel was in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses even spends 40 days on Mount Sinai, the representative of Israel, spending 40 days right before his, a significant point in his ministry, even as Jesus, that's Exodus 24, even as Jesus here is spending 40 days in the wilderness in preparation right before he enters into his uh, significant time at the beginning of his ministry. And Israel is tempted just as Christ is tempted They're tempted to despair as they cross the Red Sea. They're tempted with murmuring at Marah. They're tempted with hunger in the wilderness of sin. They're tempted with the golden calf at Sinai. They're tempted with the strange fire, the sons of the high priest. Um, They're they're tempted with lust after what they had in Egypt. They're they're tempted uh, with water. Um, They're thirsting. They're tempted in Horeb with their disobedience. They're tempted uh, with unbelief. And so we find this pattern of having this parallelism of of what Israel was going through. Now we see Jesus going through. Even Moses fasted and prayed for 40 days in Exodus 24. And it's in these vulnerabilities and this moment of our bodies lacking that the greatest temptation comes upon us. The timing of temptation in our lives is always in our vulnerability. And I wonder in this morning, what are your vulnerabilities? Are you aware of those? Are you physically tired? Are you emotionally tired? Are you spiritually tired? Are, is, there, is there something that big that's coming up in your life? Have you been isolated from people for some time? Maybe you've been in quarantine. Maybe it's been hard to get around people. These are the moments where the tempter comes to us, the enemy of our souls, and tries to seduce us away And there's a specific kind of attack. This brings us to our second movement here. There's a specific kind of attack that the enemy of our soul makes comes at us in our vulnerability. And we find this in verses 3 through 12. There's an attack within the temptation. What does the enemy attack when he's tempting us? Verse 3. Here's what the enemy says. Here's his opening line to Jesus. If you are the son of God... That's how he begins his temptations. Now, now what is going on here? 
He's gonna go, we're going to go through these temptations here. He's going to talk through them. But, but, but let me just make a, a really important observation here that sort of um, you know, umbrellas this entire observation. The attack that the enemy makes in our lives through temptation almost always goes right after our most significant relationships. If you are the son of God, do you hear the question in it? The very, que- the, very, the very nature of the statement begs a question. Jesus, is that really who you are? Because you've been here for 40 days, you haven't eaten anything, you haven't been around anybody. Are you really the son of God? Is your, is your, is your relationship as a son to your father secure? And this is where Satan wants to destroy us. This is his approach, this is his pattern, this is his design if he can destroy the root of our relationships, everything else falls apart. The most, if he can get at the most intimate places of our, of our lives in our relationships, do not underestimate how the enemy wants to try to destroy marriages, destroy friendships, destroy churches. He goes after our, our spouses. He goes after our relationship with our parents. He goes after our relationships with our friends. He goes after our relationships with our children. He goes after our relationships with our relatives. He goes after our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. And I'll tell you right now, the enemy is having a heyday in our nation and in our world, dividing the body of Christ. And that's part of this message to say, we don't have to submit ourselves to that. This is the echo of Genesis chapter three, verse one, where the enemy in a different context is tempting our first mother, Eve. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Because ultimately it's not just the intimate relationships we have, human relationships that the enemy comes after, but behind that, underneath all of that is actually a deeper, a deeper wicked and evil question. And that question has to do with, do you as a person, as a human being, as a Christian, do you, can you really trust your heavenly father? See, that's, that's the question in the garden. Did God really say this to you? Can you really trust your father in heaven? Can you really trust the God who created you? And this was the enemy's approach to tempting Jesus. It's kind of one big temptation. Are you secure in your father's love? Are you stable in your father's love? Let's look at these one by one. Verse three, here here is the idea. He's attacking us at our core relationship, our core relationship with our father in heaven. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, what is behind this question? It's a very simple question. It's a basic question. Will God really provide for you? It's a question of provision. It's a temptation for sustenance. It's a temptation for bread. It, there's a fear. And, and by the way, all these temptations are rooted and, and they play upon fear. There's a fear of not having enough. There's a fear of not having provision. And here the enemy goes right after Jesus when he is hungry. It says, will he really provide bread for you? I don't know if you can actually know that. And this is Israel in the desert. Desperately wanting bread. Then they got bread but it wasn't enough. Constantly, the enemy's goal is to erode our trust, our deep abiding in our heavenly father. And here it is right here. Will he really provide for you? Is he a God who provides? Second temptation. 
verses 5 through 7. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, it's important to mention that in some sense, Satan has, you know, is the ruler of this world. That's John 12, 31. Jesus says that, First uh, John 5, 19. But his claim here is not accepted as fully true. He doesn't have authority under God's ultimate and Christ's ultimate authority because all authority belongs to Christ. All authority belongs to God. That's Romans 13. That's Psalm 24. And so there's a subtle erosion, again, of doubt, of questioning, of who God is in relationship to Jesus. Who is the father to the son? Here's the question behind the question. Will he really love you? Will, will he really adore you? Will your father really see you? Does he see you? I mean, here you are in this desert 40 days without food. Don't you need a little affirmation right now, Jesus? I can give that to you. I can give you power and I can give you glory. And think about the temptation. It stirs a fear of not being loved, a fear of not being valued, a fear of not being adored, a fear of not being paid attention to. One of the core lies that the enemy speaks over us or tempts us with. Who is God to you? Does he really know who you are? Does he really see you in the situation you're in? And then the third temptation, verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning uh, you to guard you and on their hands they will bear up for you lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so here, the pinnacle of the temple, probably located at the southeastern corner of the temple mount, it overlooked a steep drop down into a valley, probably some 300 feet below, and he quotes scripture, the enemy of our souls, twists, manipulates, distorts scripture, and it's a question of protection. Will God really protect you? Is he good? It's a, it's a, it's a temptation to test God's goodness. Throw yourself down. Will he protect you? Is he good? Can you, can you trust that he will really catch you? Will he follow through? Test him. And we know this because Jesus responds, and we're going to look at this in a minute. Distrust of God's goodness. Is God good, or do you need to protect yourself? Is God good, and will he look after you and take care of you? Or do you need to secure yourself and make yourself safe? You see, the temptation behind every temptation is to believe a root lie about who God is. The issue with temptation is not primarily the act itself. If the act, the sinful act, you act or you don't act upon it, no doubt it will wreak havoc in your life and it's tragic and it's sin and it's horrific. But underneath that temptation is a deeper, underneath that act is, or to not act is a temptation to believe something. It's to believe a lie about the very nature of who your heavenly father is. And that's where the enemy wants to attack us. Let me just walk through a couple of examples and I want to, uh, you know, uh, talk about two that are really prevalent right now. Am I tempted to slander that person? I may be genuinely hurt by that person, but behind it, What's underneath? Maybe I don't really believe I'm as valued as I am by my heavenly father. And so because I have that deep-seated lie that I'm believing, I then am going to act out in sin against this brother or sister or this person in my life. 
Am I tempted to engage in an inappropriate conversation or relationship with somebody who's not my spouse? I may be struggling with connection with my spouse. Perhaps that's you this morning. But behind it, what's underneath of that is this this, this deep thing, I, I, I don't actually believe that my Father in Heaven can emotionally, relationally satisfy me, so I have to look elsewhere. Maybe you're tempted to doubt your employer or, the, or, your, or the authorities in your life, your parents' motives. You may be dealing with an imperfect leader. Chances are you absolutely are. All of a, every leader is imperfect, myself in, included. But maybe underneath of it or behind it, it's the fact that you don't actually believe that your father in heaven is trustworthy or good or looking out for you. And so it's not to say you shouldn't confront unhealthy leadership. That's a really healthy and important thing to do. It's to say that, check your heart, examine your heart, understand if there's a lie you're believing about who God is, his character and his nature and his relationship to you. Maybe you're tempted to cheat on your exams. Maybe you're genuinely struggling with the feeling of a need to be perfect or have a perfect resume, but behind it, underneath of it, what you're really struggling with is that you don't feel like you would be accepted by your father in heaven if you lose or if you fail. Maybe you're tempted to lie about something you did wrong. You may be dealing with guilt or shame behind it. I get that. That makes sense. That's probably a healthy thing in terms of uh, feeling healthy guilt around lying. But maybe underneath of it, there's a deep desire for affirmation. You feel like you won't be loved. You won't be accepted. You'll be rejected by your Father in heaven if you fail. And so you lie about it to cover yourself. Maybe you're tempted to steal something You may be struggling with coveting. That may be a reality. But maybe behind it, you don't actually believe your Father in heaven will provide. But the the thing I want to talk about just directly and have a real conversation together with as a church is about the fear, the temptation of fear that's running rampant in our culture right now. Let me just share a couple thoughts on this because I think it's the, probably the, the strongest example of temptation we're facing as a nation that we may, many of us in our church may be facing today. When you start to remove God from the center of a culture, from the center of a nation, not to say that we can look back and say we were ever a Christian nation because of the horrific things in our past, but that is to say at least one point time in our nation, our, our presidents, our senators, our, our leaders, our business owners acknowledge that God was who we live our lives under. And as that has eroded and gone away over the years, of course people are left with deep-seated fear. You may or may not be willing to admit it, but human beings are completely inconsistent and completely unreliable. And so if God is removed and out of the equation, then of course you are going to be fearful. And of course you are going to freak out at every little thing. And this fear is at an all-time high right now. I mean, this is the temptation I think we're facing as a nation in so many ways. Let me just talk about two ways this is playing out. And I'm going to get real specific here. And if it offends you, you know, come talk to me. Let's have a great conversation. This is, if we're going to be real as a church and grow as a body, we've got to have real conversations. So on one end, there is a deep, real temptation to fear the real virus that's at hand, the pandemic that is upon us that many of us have been impacted by in real ways. And there is a fear of the virus And I'm not talking about a healthy concern. I'm not talking about making good preparations. I'm not talking about loving our neighbors well. Those are all good things. I'm just saying some of us, and and, and I'm challenging you to examine your heart and seek the Lord on this, have fallen into a deep fear around the virus. And we've been paralyzed and we're living paralyzed and we're not living in freedom. It's an idol 
of security, an idol of control, an idol of safety. That's, that's, that's the God we functionally worship in that moment. And we maybe bend in and out of it. Okay? The truth is, as we read the scripture, is that we're never promised security in this world. The truth is we are called to live boldly in this world. We're called to, to, to live radically in the name of Jesus, love like crazy, and to not live in fear. And, and if, if that's you this morning struggling with this, I want to encourage you. Consider your heart. Confess that. Talk about that. That may be a real temptation that you have been dealing with in your life over the last few months. It would make sense. We would have no judgment. I would have no judgment. I've fallen into that myself at times. I had a few freak out moments in the grocery store where I'm just like filled with fear around getting the virus. There's another kind of fear that's at play in our nation. I think we saw it play out tragically at the Capitol over the uh, last several days last week. And it's a fear, not of the virus, not of safety and control. It's actually a fear of losing our rights. It's a fear of being controlled. It's a fear of losing our freedom or our autonomy. And that may be the God that you are functionally worshiping. And that's a real thing in our culture. It's not really talked about, but it's just as much of a fear as the virus. It's a fear of losing our freedom. And sometimes, tragically, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, are taking this and melding it in some kind of distorted way with, with uh, Americanism. And it's not healthy and it's not good. Because, here's why, the scripture never promises our freedom in that way. It just doesn't. You will never read the New Testament and hear the Apostle Paul writing to his friends and saying, pray for me to get out of jail. Pray for me to have freedom of speech. Pray for me to have liberty. Pray for me to have, he wants liberty of heart. He's not concerned about liberty in the world. He's never prays. Pray that Caesar would let me out of prison. It's just not a prayer he prays. In fact, he actually continually says the opposite. When I came to Christ, I gave up my rights. When I came to Christ, I laid them down. The gospel calls me in love to lay down my agenda and my rights. I'm not promised anything in this world. When we come into the new life in Christ, our citizenship is hidden with Christ in heaven and we get to play it out in this world and we get to not demand things in any direction at all. And that's a hard word and I get it. And I know it's a really scary and hard time right now in our nation. I get it. I feel it too. I've fallen into this idol as well. I've fallen into that idol of fear. I'm probably a little bit more wired in that direction personally, to be honest. But that's not biblical truth. The enemy will attack us in our vulnerability. And in this moment, he is trying to stir up fear but there is incredible news for us as a church, wherever you are on that spectrum. Maybe you are just rocking and rolling. You're like, I just love people. I follow the rules. I'm not scared of losing my freedom. I'm fine. Great. If that's you, wonderful. That's not a lot of people right now. And so we need good news from heaven. And this brings us to our last observation here. How then can we resist temptation? You know you have to examine your heart. You have to talk with your spouse, your friends, your neighbors about where you are on this spectrum. You might be way on one side, way on the other side. Wherever you are this morning, there is good news. Because in this moment of temptation, 
where the enemy is trying to pick apart Jesus and his relationship with his heavenly father, he is grounded and rooted through a couple of things. First, the truth of God's word. Every temptation is met with a specific scripture that addresses the particular temptation. And we as believers, we as Christians should follow his example. So let's look at verse four, okay? Jesus responds to the question of God's good provision with this. Jesus answered him, it is written, man should not live by bread alone. In other words, nothing in this world is what truly nurtures you eternally. It's not to say there aren't good things in this world. It's not to say there aren't beautiful things in this world. Absolutely there are. It's just that Jesus looked at the enemy in his eyes and quoted scripture and he said, listen, the bread of this world is not what feeds me. I am fed by the truth of this book. I am fed by the truth of this book through my heavenly father. And that's our story. And so anytime that that lie, that temptation rises up, that fear rises up in you, may we be a kind of people that says, quoting first John, perfect love drives out fear. Lord, I don't want to fall into fear in any direction. I want to live under your perfect security and your perfect love, not fearing anything, not fearing a virus, not fearing losing my freedom. Verse eight, the question of adoration, the question of acceptance, the question of love, the question of being seen. Here's how Jesus answers him. It is written, he's quoting the word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus speaking to the lie, the truth. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't need glory. I don't need to be on top of that mountain. I don't need to have authority. He already had authority, by the way, but in our cases, we don't need authority. We don't need to be on top of the mountain. We don't have to be in control. We don't have to get glory because our heavenly Father is the one who receives glory and our lives before him are to give him glory. And then in verse 12, where there's a direct attack around the question of security and protection, will God actually protect you? And this is a big one for us right now. Those of us who are struggling with fear of our own security and our own safety, it's a real thing. Jesus replies, Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, you can trust him. He is good. He will provide for you. It's not to say that your life will be easy. It's not to say you won't get the virus. It's not to say you won't lose some freedoms in this world. It's to say that he is good and he is your source and he is your salvation. I love my friend, Brett McCracken. Uh, he's an editor with the Gospel Coalition and he has written a work and he has this great image called the Wisdom Pyramid. And I, we're going to I posted on Facebook, we'll post it on our website this week. And I think it's great because some of us right now, some of our struggle is where are we getting our information? And are we listening constantly to the lies of the enemy or are we rooting ourselves in truth? And if you look at this image, we'll put it on the screen here, at the very bottom of the pyramid, it's kind of like a food pyramid, you have the truth of the word. And that's the thing that should inform most of our, most of our lives. If you're reading the news more than you're reading the word of God, that's a problem. I'm not saying don't read the news. I'm saying get your source, get your resource, get your nutrients from the Bible. The church, maybe you can't or you don't feel comfortable meeting in person right now. That's okay. 
Okay, we get that. There's freedom. There's liberty in that to do that. But get on the phone. Get on a Zoom call. Meet with people. Join in with others to, to, in a discipleship band. Uh, link in with your community group. Do not allow the enemy to tempt you away from people in this season. Let's get together and be the church together, even if we have to do it through distancing and through technology. I love his pyramid. It goes on. Nature, God's general revelation. It's a way to, um, to, to see God's beauty for our hearts and our eyes to be lifted to his glory. Books, healthy, good, you know, solid books are great resource that, that give us truth and help us to shape our mind and our imaginations and, and thwart off the enemy's attacks. Beauty, beauty is a real thing that God created. It's a gift to us and we wanna, we wanna look at things that are beautiful and enjoy them. And then lastly, at the very top, internet and social media. Just use it for personal stuff. Don't get your news from there. It's not helpful. I know it's hard right now. It's like we don't know where to get our news from. But just if you just follow this idea of, of letting the, the word be the basis and going up from there, I think that our lives will be much more free of temptation and free of sin, and we will find ourselves flourishing and thriving as a church and as, as a community. Secondly, this isn't necessarily in this passage, but the scripture encourages us to confess our sin. That's why we practice confession every week. But here's the opportunity for us is not just to confess our sin, but can we confess our temptation? Like when you get triggered, when you feel upset, when you start to have that desire to lash out at somebody or to sin in some way, before you act out, can you get a brother or a sister on the phone and just reach out by a text and say, look, I'm really angry right now. I feel like doing something I shouldn't do. I just need to confess that to you. How much better is it to confess your temptation than to confess your sin? And then finally, and this is where the hope and the good news comes for us this morning because we can do all these things. The temptations will still come, but we need another resource. We need the resource that we talk about each week, the resource of grace, the resource of the cross. We need to look to Christ, not just as an example. He's a great example here but he's more than an example. We need him as a resource. We need him to saturate our lives. We need to see the cross. We need to see his love for us. We need to see his love poured out and sacrificed for us. And we need to say and be honest about our condition and say, I actually can't resist that temptation on my own, Lord. I need you. I need your grace. And I love what we find in this parallel. In the Old Testament, it was Israel that was testing God, if you remember, but here in this story, it's incredible news. It's God who's allowing himself to be tested. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because he's saying something to the world. Because the incarnation of Christ says something to the world. Because the gospel says something to the world. It says, you, O weary world, riveted with fear, burdened, divided, heavy laden, Come to me, Christ says, and I will give you rest. What is Jesus doing here? He's showing us that he can do something that Israel could not do and you and I can't do on our own. We're too weak, we're too frail. He's saying, I will carry the temptation for you and I will carry it all the way to the cross and that's exactly what he did. Because if you remember in the garden, he endured a greater test his desire, I don't know if I would, we could biblically say tempted, but his desire was to not go to the cross. He was praying to his Father in heaven, Lord, let this cup pass from me. 
but not what my will is, but what your will is. If we could just have that heart as a church. But Christ endured the ultimate temptation of going to the cross. He went to the cross. He took on the cross. He laid his life down. That when we fall into temptation, when we sin and we will, and when we are riveted with fear, and we will be, and when we freak out and worship idols, and we will do that, the good news is that we are not condemned. Our relationship is not broken with our Heavenly Father, but it is found whole because Jesus, through the cross, carried our sins, carried all of the ways that we act out, all of our fears upon Himself, that we might receive grace and forgiveness and freedom in Him. Not necessarily a kind of freedom in this world, but a freedom in Him. Christ did what Israel could not do and what we cannot do. This is why Hebrews 4, 14, 16 encourages us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And that's our hope. He is our hope. He is our King. Let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's what we're in right now. We're in a time of need. We've been in a time of need. We need Jesus. We need his love. We need who he was as a person. We need who he is now interceding for us. We need the power of his resurrection in our lives. Jesus is the new Israel who fulfills God's promise for his people. It's amazing because Israel settled in the promised land after they came through the wilderness. Jesus doesn't settle. He begins to establish a completely new landscape. He begins to establish his kingdom. He begins to form a new humanity, a type of people who are found so secure, so secure in their father's love that when those temptations come, we're honest about them, we're talking about them, we're working through them, we're struggling, we're stumbling, we're confessing, we're growing, we're being transformed. That's who we're called to be as a church. That's why we're brought together. I was sharing this story about this guy that I was so frustrated with, with, with David and Eli the other day, and I was just venting to them. I need to confess that. And... I started expressing how frustrated I was and, and how I just and just totally tempted to relationally go after him or cut him off or just have nothing to do with him. And David, your pastor, our pastor, my brother, he says, Joey, no. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> like, like that what he was part of is not cool. That's not okay. He goes, You're right. But he goes, Joey. He needs the gospel too. He needs grace too. We need grace. You need grace. I need grace. He said, that's, David said, that's the exact kind of person that we talk about, that we need to invite into our gatherings, that we want to bring them in to hear the gospel. Even if we disagree with everything about their life, Christ has accepted you, Joey. Christ has accepted us and him. How can we push people away in that way? How can we be part of the division? How can our fear drive us to be separated from one another? 
He wasn't saying don't have a conviction. He's saying that even when you disagree, even when there's people who are acting crazy, love, serve, extend grace and mercy because that's what God in Christ did for you and that's what we are called to do as a body for them. And the only motivation that allows us to sustain that is the great love that has come from heaven to earth.